HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Worldwide Soba, restaurant consulting, noodle factory, and academy. For more information, visit worldwide-soba.com. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Who doesn't love a great, warm, juicy, creamy plate of macaroni and cheese, otherwise known as mac and cheese? But what does that have to do with black chefs in the White House? We'll find out today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. And yes, mac and cheese. Who doesn't love mac and cheese? And But where did it come from? And according to the Smithsonian, I think they said that the earliest known recipe was for mac and cheese was scribbled down, scribbled down, well, written down in 1769. Hmm, that gives you some indication, perhaps. And it has become a staple in the American diet. Um, sometimes more than than it should, but um, who you know occasionally you just have to have that great treat, and also it our attention right now is very much on the White House and the upcoming election, and it's almost President's Day as well, so we have a lot of things converging on us at once, and I would like to get to the bottom of this. So we have joining us today, Adrian Miller. From somewhere, we'll find out, but Adrian uh, calls himself a recovering lawyer and politico who turned into a food writer interested in African heritage food, especially soul food, barbecue, the intersection of faith and food, and presidential foodways. He is indeed Adrian Miller. Adrian is a graduate of Stanford University and Georgetown University Law School, and after Practicing law in Denver for several years, Adrian became special assistant to President Clinton and deputy director of the President's Initiative for One America, which I'll have him talk about shortly. Um, He is currently the executive director of the Colorado Council of Churches 
And he's a certified barbecue judge as well. His book, his recent book, oh, a couple of years ago, I guess, was which is still wild, wildly popular, is Soul Food, The Surprising Study of an American Cuisine One Plate at a Time, and a new project he's got going on presidents we're going to talk about shortly. The, the Soul Food book won a James Beard Foundation Book Award for reference and scholarship. And Adrian, welcome to the show. You lecture all over the country. Where are you right now? Well, thank you for having me. So I am now in my hometown of Denver, Colorado. Oh, okay. I didn't but, know whether you were still on the road or not. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. No, I was been bouncing. I just got back from Stanford University, my alma mater, where I was a, a guest chef for their Mardi Gras dinner. Oh, wonderful. So, uh, yeah, so I'm in Denver for a hot minute, and then I'm on my way to the Carolinas, which is going to be tricky, given what my world champion Denver Broncos did to Carolina. Yeah, right. So I hope to show a brother some love when I get out there. Yeah, you just don't have to tell them where you come from. That's, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, before we talk about this this intersection of macaroni and cheese and, and the White House, um, I want to know a little bit about the um, the President's Initiative for One America that you worked on when Clinton was in office. What is that? Oh, what was sure. It? Yeah, so it was an outgrowth of the President's Initiative on Race, which was launched in 97. And the whole idea was that if we, President Clinton's idea was that if we just got to talk to one another and really got to know each other, we'd probably understand that what supposedly divides us is not really as strong as what unites us. We have a lot more in common. And so the idea was to have honest dialogue about race. That uh, initiative on race happened for about a year and a half, and uh, John Hope Franklin was the chair of that. And um, at the end of it, there was a recommendation to have an ongoing office in the White House to continue to deal with not only promoting honest dialogue about race, but also closing what we call the opportunity gaps. And those are racial disparities and things like access to education, health care, um, incoming inequality. Hmm. and uh, promoting reconciliation among cross-racial, ethnic, and religious lines. So that effort was called the Initiative for One America. Oh, and that's okay. what I worked on. All right. And then you went on to work for the governor of Colorado, the then governor, Governor Ritter, uh, yes. for a while, right? Mm-hmm. So you really have yeah. delved into politics, um, you know, post your law career. And that, I guess that set you up for um, being the executive director of the Colorado Council of Churches as well. You're the first African-American and the first lay person to hold that position, correct? That's correct. Wow. So, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. interesting. Yeah, so, yeah, they've been very accepting of me as a lay person, mm-hmm. um, the, the pastors and stuff, because I, I was worried that if I wasn't a pastor, it might be a rough go, but it has been exactly the opposite. A lot of mm-hmm. grace offered well. my way. <laughs> well, you bring a lot yeah. of good food into the discussion, <laughs> because yes, yeah. you, well, you are a culinary historian, as I said, and a certified barbecue judge. Um what I so what I'm interested in is let you you did this whole mac and cheese um, lecture. Well, what is it? A couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. last week. Um, tell me a little bit about the history of macaroni and cheese and why that became such a hot topic for you. Sure. So the earliest recipe that I've been able to find for mac and cheese actually goes back to the late uh, 1300s. So in the form of Curry cookbook, which was the go-to cookbook for the uh, royal courts around Europe, specifically Elizabeth I, Richard II, they had a mac and cheese recipe. It was called macros, Um, but it was just essentially the pasta with some Parmesan cheese on top. So over time, milk, cream, eggs, all this other stuff gets added, 
And um, fast forward to the late 1780s when Thomas Jefferson is uh, the minister to France, and while he was over in France, he fell in love with the dish. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was so in love with it, but when, when his uh, term ended as minister to France, when he was moving back to the United States, he actually smuggled a macaroni maker uh, back to the United States. And then smuggled is the right term because the Italians and the French had it on lockdown, so they didn't want anybody else to have that technology. And uh, the interesting thing is, is that um, the macaroni maker that he smuggled, he drew a schematic of it, which you can find in the Library of Congress to, to this day. Just in um, case it didn't make it in, he could recreate it, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so we know that while he was in France, he served this dish, and his enslaved cook, James Hemings, who was Sally, one of Sally Hemings' older brother, uh, older brothers, was over there. Um, and Jefferson had spent three years uh, having him trained in classical French cooking. And so uh, when he gets back to the United States, uh, he starts serving it here, and he actually serves it in the White House. And we know that this happened because one of the dinner guests actually wrote about it in his diary. Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah, and that dinner guest was a representative from Massachusetts, a guy named Reverend Manasseh Cutler. And then the rest is history, as they say, because macaroni and yeah. cheese just stayed stayed around, and it's a dish that nobody wants to have go away. Um, yeah. In that, okay, so that um, ties us in with James Hemings, and um, then you know, then the whole thing comes up about um, James Hemings never really was the official executive chef in the White House, correct? That's correct. So um, James Hemings cooks for Jefferson up until about 1796, and then he uh, asks Jefferson to free him. And Jefferson agrees on two conditions. One is Hemings had to teach uh, people back, other enslaved cooks back at Monticello, how to make all of the dishes that he learned how to make. Mm -hmm. Because Jefferson did not want to pay for that again, that education again. Uh, And then the second was for him to leave behind his recipes. So he does that for a few years, and then eventually he does leave uh, Jefferson, and he's on his own. And now Jefferson is, though, he keeps trying to court James Hemings back to work for him. And undoubtedly he would have offered him the job, but James Hemings ends up drinking himself to death Mm -hmm. before uh, Jefferson becomes president. So uh, his life comes to a tragic end. But uh, most certainly if he were around, uh, Jefferson would have asked him to to cook in the White House. Yeah, well, he left behind his recipe for macaroni and cheese, which is is, is good for us. But um, I have a, another question for you about macaroni and cheese, and that sure. is how you, um, in your book, Soul Food, um, which is a, a wonderful book, um, The Surprising Story of American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time, um, how did macaroni and cheese make it um, as then a soul food staple? Yeah, it's a fascinating story. So you have to understand that right now there are older African Americans walking around believing that white people stole mac and cheese from us, <laughs> that we somehow invented it, which is not the case at all. But that just shows you how embraced, uh, how, how the black community has embraced this, uh, you know, ethnic dish. But um, Thanks to people like uh, Thomas Jefferson and other people in the plant, uh, in the antebellum South, on plantations they would often serve macaroni and cheese as part of the Saturday meal or the Sunday meal, uh, especially when you had extended family and guests over. Mm-hmm. So it was a high-end dish in the antebellum South, and enslaved cooks were the ones often making this dish in the big houses. 
So they took that expertise, and then it starts to become part of kind of black culture, especially after emancipation. Um, whenever there was a company coming over or a special occasion, you usually had the uh, really goopy, you know, eggy, cheesy mac and cheese served. That was the company dish. And um, looking at newspaper accounts of what people were eating at public celebrations and also in private homes, you just see mac and cheese all over the place. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing, so that's in the high-end sphere of things. But also, uh, mac and cheese was often one of the foods that was provided um, for relief to poor families. So uh, often they were getting macaroni and government cheese as well. So then again, there was a natural kind of convergence of the dish for another segment of the black community. So hitting it from the high and, quote, unquote, the low, you see how this dish just endures uh, to this day. Right. And now, um, for because t- I wasn't really going to write about mac and cheese because I thought it was too universal. But I had so many of my African-American uh, friends threaten to slap me upside my head if I didn't include it that I just <laughs> bowed to peer pressure. And that's why I wrote about it. But yeah. it does resonate strongly with the, the community. Absolutely. And and you have your own um, particular philosophy and definition of what is soul food. And yes. and macaroni and cheese, of course, I can see that fits right into it because it is a comfort food. Now, you tell us, and that is what is that your definition of soul food? That's one of my definitions. So just like a nice coconut cake, I have different layers to it. So <laughs> the first layer is I talk about soul food as a tr- one, of the, one of the traditional foods for African Americans, because I believe that Creole food of the you know New Orleans and Mobile is different than soul food, and I also think the low country food of the Carolinas is different, both very related. And I think southern food is different to some extent. Um, I think of soul food as the more intense version of southern food. It's going to have more fat, more sugar, more salt. You know, just more intense flavors. But it's definitely a comfort food that black migrants living in the Deep South take with them once they leave the South and settle in other parts of the country. And like other immigrant groups, when you get to the new place, you try to recreate home. And so since macaroni and cheese was one of those celebration foods from the South that they brought up with them to the North and the West, it starts to become everyday food because people are starting to live the good life. They're starting to do better. They're starting to prosper. And so instead of having the day-in and day-out stuff that can get kind of tedious, they start weaving in these fancy dishes. And mac and cheese is right up there with uh, fried chicken and the glorious cakes and cobblers as kind of celebration food that starts to become part of the core diet. Right, right. Well, it's it's interesting because, um, well, but of course it's interesting, but interesting that you mentioned the other immigrants and the food and the food that's i mean food memory is so much of what we talk about um in culinary history about where in in trying to trace origins of foods and indeed when someone is away from home what's the one thing that you know makes you feel close to home and comfortable and it's food of your of your background right mhm absolutely yeah, yeah that's the way to recreate home that's right absolutely well yeah. That brings us then on to a, a larger topic and a project that you are working on. Um, it's your the book is you don't have the book out yet. The Black Chef. It's called well, you founded a lecture series called Black Chefs in the White House: The Hidden History of the White House Kitchen. Uh, yes. Tell us about that. Yeah. So that book is going to come out in spring of 2017. Um, it's going to be published by the University of Northern uh, Carolina Press and. Um, in my research for my first soul food book, I just started to get introduced to these African-American presidential chefs, and um, they just kept popping up in my research. And so I thought, well, let me just see what 
is going on here? Because, um, of course, while I was working in the White House, I wasn't interested in this subject, <laughs> but now I am. And um, through my research, I found out that every president of the United States has had an African-American cooking for them in some capacity, whether it was in the White House kitchen, on the presidential train, yacht, or Air Force One, or when the presidents would travel to another place. And so I started to uh, compile all of these names, and right now I've identified 150 people from George Washington to Barack Obama who have been in the White House kitchen, and I have their stories and their recipes. Wow. So I am so excited to share this with folks. Wow. Um, and, you know, I, for some reason, I just never ever thought about that. But when you think about who our presidents have been and where they come from, of course it makes sense that you had African-Americans in the kitchen. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I was, uh, I've had Tony Tipton Martin on the show, too, and she writes a lot about these hidden cooks, the, you know, the people who were sort of hiding in plain sight, as they say, in the Jemima Code. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, is so, what you're doing is, is so important in kind of bringing these, these people to life. Of course, Hercules uh, Hercules mm-hmm. Caesar is, is a name that a lot of people, that that name has uh, come out, and that was George Washington's cook. Um, so what are some of, can you share some of the stories that um, that you have discovered up to this point? Oh, sure. Um, so the, the thing to know about these cooks is that not only were they excellent cooks in, in cooking in the kitchen, but they were also, in many uh, cases, civil rights advisors for presidents. Um, they gave presidents a unique aspect of window on African-American life. Uh, they were family confidants um, as well. So they, they just played a lot of different roles in the White House kitchen. But I'll tell you, uh, the, a fun story is uh, about a woman named Zephyr Wright, who was uh, President Lyndon Johnson's private cook. And she was really the last kind of private cook that a president brought to the White House who was African-American. But uh, I'll tell you about the uh, Chile controversy of 1964. Uh, so she, uh, every once in a while, the White House would release recipes, and so they released a recipe for the Perdinalis River Chili, which is the river that runs by the LBJ Ranch in Stonewall, Texas, kind of in central Texas. And true to Texas form, that recipe did not include beans. So the American public went crazy. You remember how, how much flag George W. H. W. Bush got for not liking broccoli? Broccoli, right. <laughs> Yeah, people thought the same thing about LBJ and beans. And so I have this hilarious account in my book where essentially uh, Zephyr Wright is uh, talking to Juanita Roberts, who was LBJ's personal secretary, about how they can reassure the public that he liked beans. So they're talking about the green beans, all the pinto beans, and all of the beans that he likes. And I just love that story. (laughs) Um, Another uh, story I'll tell you real quick is about uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt would spend uh, a lot of time in Warm Springs, Georgia, uh, because they had a hot springs where he would get rehab for his polio condition. Mm-hmm. And there, when he was there, uh, Daisy Bonner was a cook who was on loan to him from a private family. And she got that guy hooked on soul food. In fact, FDR loved broiled pig's feet. Loved it. Loved it so much that he actually served it in the White House to, uh, and a sweet and sour pig's feet in the White House to Winston Churchill. And so I talk about Winston Churchill's reaction to that in the book. So those are some, just kind of some of the fun stories. Yeah, that's but, that's um, great. Well, I'm going to hear yeah, I'm when I hear a couple more of those stories um, right after we take a short break. So stay tuned because we're going to take a short break and come back with Adrian Miller.
Today's program was brought to you by Worldwide Soba, restaurant consulting noodle factory and academy. Buckwheat noodles, also known as soba, contain a variety of nutrients that are natural and healthy additions to one's diet. Not only are they excellent for mental and digestive health, they're also believed by many around the world for having properties that prevent lifestyle diseases. Currently, Worldwide Soba is consulting 35 kinds of Japanese restaurants in the United States. Visit their website for more at worldwide-soba.com. Hi, we're back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm speaking with Adrian Miller, and also known as the Soul Food Scholar. And Adrian, you've stated um, before that um, food was sort of a metaphor for how we view our presidents. And I think this, you know, the a lot of the chefs, they well, a lot of the presidents fell in love with the soul food, but a lot of the chefs then realized that they had to, this is the president, they had to be careful about what they were preparing for them, right? Right. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of our presidents have arrived at the White House and not the best uh, of health. Mm-hmm. And so they typically have been on some kind of diet. Now, the the African-American chefs have been in a tricky spot because you have the president saying, you know, hook me up with the stuff I love, which tends to be junk food. But then you often have the White House physician and the first lady saying, no, keep him on this diet. And so, you know, they're kind of caught in the middle. So usually the president's going to get what they want. And uh, just a funny example of this is with uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Daisy Bonner, who I mentioned in the previous segment. So what uh, the president would want his, you know, kind of rich food, and uh, what he would do is uh, basically work with Daisy Bonner. So she would bring a plate of food out, and it would be the healthy stuff that the White House doctor or the First Lady had said he needed to eat. And she would whisper in his ear, don't eat that. (laughs) <laughs> and so he would just play with his food, and he would just act like he's not hungry. And then once everybody left, she would hook him up in the kitchen with what he really wanted. <laughs> so it's just kind of funny how that plays yeah. out. How but, little um, has changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, the Americans, we just have a, we want a personal connection with their with our president. And before uh, security really got increased, you would not believe just the tons of food that people would send to the White House. Uh, either congratulate a president, they may read in the paper that the president likes certain dish, and then people would just send that food. And then um, people used to send possums to the president and, the, and turkeys and other things. And believe it or not, the presidents would actually eat those foods. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Don't think kind that would get, wouldn't, that would wouldn't get through, right, through the door. Right, wouldn't get through the door today. Yeah. And, you know, the, what about... Um, you, what about Dolly Johnson and and Benjamin Harrison, um, President Harrison? Dolly Johnson was she was a name that we um, has been written about a lot lately. What um, what can you tell us about that story? Yeah, so Dolly Johnson, she's a really fascinating personality because uh, when she got hired, uh, she made national headlines. So newspapers ran articles about her and her hire, which was very unusual for an African American woman uh, for that to happen in the late 1880s because essentially uh, African-Americans were invisible. So in a lot of newspaper reports about the White House kitchen, they may mention that there was a Negro cook or a colored cook working there, but they would never really give the person's name because why Why would you need to? Mm-hmm. Not an important person. So the fact that she made national headlines was, was spectacular. 
And it's also interesting that you're, you're talking about African-American cooks at kind of the height of their bargaining power. Um, before, often they had to cook because they were forced to. But here's a person who was a well-known cook. Um, she was wealthy and educated. She didn't have to take the job. And so they actually had to woo her to the kitchen, which is just kind of interesting in and of itself. But she worked with uh, Caroline Harrison to make a lot of things like a, a sausage roll. And she makes a, a deviled almond, which is essentially an almond that's buttered with some cayenne pepper on it. That is addictive. Hmm. So I'll definitely include that in my recipe in my book. Uh, she only works for the, in the White House for a short period of time because she had a sick daughter. So she leaves the White House. But then uh, Grover Cleveland, who took office after Harrison, actually tries to get her back. So that just speaks to her culinary prowess. And um, the, the other interesting thing about Dolly Johnson's hire is that uh, a French chef, a woman named Madame Pelunov, is actually fired because of that. And she ends up suing the White House because <laughs> hmm. she felt that she was unjustly fired. <laughs> interesting. Uh, so, that goes yeah. both ways. Uh, you know, it's interesting because uh, Dolly Johnson in particular, um, working, in, you know, as a the cook, well, cook, we she wasn't called a chef, right? <laughs> a cook. Right, yeah, head cook. Yeah, yeah, right, head cook. Um, and there were a couple other women too, right? And you mentioned Zephyr Wright. Uh, and yet today we have um, Obama's... Uh, chef, uh, Christetta Comerford, who, you know, big deal was made because she was the first female executive chef, when, in fact, there were other females, not only females, but females of color who were in the kitchen, but it was just something we didn't hear about, as you said, just, you know, why mention their name? Right, right, <laughs> right, right. And, you know, the, the interesting thing about that is, uh, so the term White House executive chef has only been around since 1961. Uh-huh. So Jacqueline Kennedy created that position because before they were just called the head cook or the chief cook of the White House kitchen. So technically, Christetta Comerford is the first woman of color to be the White House executive chef because that's just been that the term. Right. But yes, as we now know, there's been women of color running the White House kitchen. So here's the interesting thing. When Jacqueline Kennedy insists on having European food made by classically trained chefs, that essentially ends the reign of black chefs in the White House because they just didn't have that formal training. So since that time, we've had African-Americans only as assistant cooks and chefs in the White House. Um, there was one point in the 90s that President Clinton wanted uh, a, an African-American man named Patrick Clark to be mm-hmm. his chef. Right. Um, but Patrick Clark turned it down because at that point he was making so much money in the private sector and he had a family, a young family, that the prestige and low pay of the White House kitchen, relatively speaking, um, was not attractive enough to him. Right. So. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, and then you became uh, good friends and presented uh, some of these uh, black chefs, the, the lecture series, along with uh, former White House chef Walter Scheib, unfortunately, who's no longer with us, and nor is Patrick Clark, unfortunately. Um, yeah. And that was... Um, that was just recently that you were doing um, some of these. Tell, tell me about the lecture series, the, the, some of the talks and programs that you were doing. Yeah, so I, I do something really fun where um, essentially I will work with a chef to create a menu based off the recipes of these presidential chefs, and then we'll curate a meal. And so the meal could be a, a historical arc, you know, like just show, uh, here's a dish from Hercules, here's a dish from James Hemings, here's one from Dolly Johnson, here's one from Zephyr Wright. 
and then I just kind of talk about the meal. So I'll introduce the course and then talk about the meal. Um, and then Walter Scheib, what he would do is then he would come in afterwards and uh, provide a contemporary view of the White House. Mm-hmm. So I had all of the historical perspective, and then he would just say, "Here, here's what the White House kitchen is like today. So it was great to see that kind of continuity over time. And then other presentation I do is I'll just pick a, pre- a president in particular and just do the same thing. Like I'll do a Thomas Jefferson dinner, and I'll say, well, here's something that Jefferson would have served on this occasion. And then, you know, you enjoy the meal, again, with the a, a modern chef kind of reinterpreting uh, those dishes. So it's been wildly successful. And we were also working on a TV show based on this concept. Uh, and unfortunately, he died last uh, summer on my birthday uh, mm. is when he went hiking and there was he got drowned in a flash flood. Yeah. So I, I miss the guy because he really understood the, 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 the significance of this project and what, why it's needed to shed a light on these uh, chefs. Right, right. Uh, And that's, um, yeah, it's it's hard hard thinking about that because it was very a very upsetting story. um, Yeah, him uh, dying. But I really am looking forward to the book that when it comes out, the um, because I think it's going to be a, a very important work. And and I'm so thrilled that you're including recipes along with it and. and, and that'll be gives it a, another little hint of you know of some of the great food that's been cooked, and uh, so you say this book will be out in two thousand spring of two thousand seventeen. Yes, okay. yes. And I'm just following your lead. I'm just trying to give people a taste of history, so that's why we're winning the recipe. <laughs> that's great. No, I think that's a wonderful thing to do. Well, Adrian, thank you so much for sharing your time, and and I look forward to more adventures in, from the Soul Food Scholar. All right. Well, thank you for having me on your show, and peace. Yeah, to you. And thank you for listening. This has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.